um, this evening and uh, see if we can't uh, can't figure out a few things here. Uh, before we begin, let's um, let's start with the word of prayer, if you don't mind, and uh, then we'll kind of go from there. All right, let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity to meet together and pray that you'll bless the time that we spend here uh, studying, that you would give us your guidance and your Holy Spirit will help us to understand and to know and uh, recall these things. Lord, vitally important in the day and age that we live that we understand some of this stuff. And I pray that you'll bless it and use it. Give me clarity of mind and thought, be able to get across the material well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, I want to start off with a couple of things here. Um, more and more as I've, I've studied and looked at some of the stuff that we're looking at, uh, I'm finding out that, um, and, and maybe as a pastor I probably should have known this already, but it seems to me that uh, there is... Acts 6. Acts 6, it's talking to me. There we go. I'm trying to get this thing out of here. Give me just a moment. Um, more and more I'm finding that some of the the things that are quickly eroding in our day and age, in our faith, um, stems from things that have happened many, many years ago. Last week I spent just a few moments uh, trying to give a brief synopsis of church history. Um, Lord willing, maybe next week, Brother Harold, week after, somewhere in there, uh, Brother Harold is going to be teaching us um, a little bit about Catholicism and maybe how to approach somebody that is a Catholic about the, the scriptures. Uh, and um, so in preparation of that last week, I began um, to work on some things. Let me, I'm trying to pull up a verse here while I'm talking. To try to pull up some things. Um, uh, let's see here. Bear with me just for a moment. Since I don't have my notes handy, I've got to pull something up here real quick. There we go. All right, let's turn to Galatians chapter 2, if you will. Um, but one of the things I'm finding here is uh, how everything is connected. Uh, the, the problems that we're starting to see and face and have to battle and deal with in our churches today, uh, the, the emerging church. Uh, you all know what I mean when I, when I use that term. I know it's not uh, some, the emerging church, kind of the seeker-friendly church, I guess, would be another way to word it. Um, people that... Uh, you know, they're, they're taking surveys now. They're going out knocking on doors, not to lead people to Christ, but to find out what do people want in a church service. And then they're, they're modeling their church to fit the world. And the Bible never, never told us that we're to model ourselves after the world. The Bible, in fact, says we're a light to the world. We're, there's something be, there should be something different about us. And the emerging church, the, the mindset of... Um, uh, come, come as you are, leave as you were. The, the de-emphasizing of holy living and standards, the de-emphasizing of doctrine, um, the uh, ecumenical, and we explained that word to you uh, last week, um, where churches come together that are not like-minded and are not doctrinally in agreement, and they say we're going to get together and we'll just agree on these few things and the rest doesn't matter. Um, I've heard people recently, in fact, as early as last week, I was talking with someone and they said, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe. Anybody ever heard something like that before? These are the things that we're battling today. 
And the reason is there has been a steady decay. And what we're looking at here regarding church history uh, is important because we'll see where this all originated from and how if we're not careful, we're going to be destined to be pulled into the same thing that that these other places uh, have been pulled into. Look with me in Galatians chapter number uh, 2, and we're going to read, let's see here, Uh, let's start in verse number... Uh, let's start in verse number 9. Galatians chapter 2 and verse number 9. And we're going to read down through the end of the chapter. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, this is Paul speaking here, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the, uncircum- or unto the circumcision. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to blame, uh, to be blamed. For before that, uh, that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. So understand what's happening here. Uh, We have uh, 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 in verse number 9, James and Cephas and John, and and the Bible refers to him here, Paul refers to him as those that seem to be pillars or men of stature, men of renown. These were the spiritual leaders. These were pastors. These were men of the word. And they were of the circumcision. And Peter, who had been with some of the uncircumcised. You remember the, what we call the, the Gentiles. Remember when uh, uh, God sent the, uh, the uh, vision of the, the uh, food coming down from heaven and, and Peter said he wasn't going to eat of it? And God told him, don't call what I made unclean, arise and eat. And uh, then Cornelius comes to his house and we remember uh, how that, uh, that Peter was shown that the Gentiles are just as important as the the, the uh, circumcision, the, the children of the circumcision, and but yet when these pillars came into town, they extended the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas. But Peter withdraws himself and, and doesn't eat with the Gentiles because he's following after the law. Okay, follow with me here. He's following. He's adding some things to faith here, and, and the idea being that he has to practice works even though he's saved by grace. And, and so Paul withstands him to the face because he's trying to hold people to the law that have been saved by the grace of God. And verse number 13, And other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas was even taken in with this, this thought. Verse number 14, But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou being a Jew livest after the manner of the Gentiles, uh, of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the what? By the works of the law. He said, Peter, you're requiring something of the Gentiles that even the Jews are saying we're saved by grace. Why are we requiring this? 
And, and so he says, uh, you know, we're not saved by the works of the law. We're not justified by the works of the law. But by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, I want us to, to understand something. I've given you a handout there, and I was hoping to have it up on the screen here. If this gets working by the end of the time, we'll pull it up real quick. But uh, I'm going to go ahead and give you the, the chart here. We have in 33 A.D. Uh, the, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ shortly after the, his ascension. And he's given a commission to especially the apostles, but pretty much to all the Christians. And we hold to the great commission uh, that's given in Scripture as something that is even intended for us today. But he tells his apostles to go and to preach the gospel to every creature. So the apostles began to preach. And that's the first blank, the apostles. The apostles. So the early churches uh, that we have in Scripture, the church that we read about in Jerusalem in the book of Acts was pastored by the apostles and Peter in particular. Uh, and then uh, uh, later on as persecution came and it scattered the believers abroad, many churches began to crop up. And they were independent churches. They were churches that had fellowship with each other, but they were independently um, governed and, and as their own body and had a pastor that led them uh, in, in their polity and the way that they worked and everything. But understand this, that as early as the Apostle Paul, which apparently was alive even during the time of Peter, who was alive during the time of Christ. In fact, uh, we find that Paul was alive and was consenting unto the death of Stephen. So this is very, very shortly. <clears throat> there are some people who believe that Paul might have even been alive as a child to even see the living Christ. If not, he certainly saw him on the road to Damascus as his qualification, one of the qualifications for being an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. But these apostles were holding to the doctrine that Jesus Christ had taught them uh, in this world. And then as they started churches and more churches started out of those churches and churches started out of those churches within the first hundred years or so, in fact, even as early as the Apostle Paul, which would be around 70 AD, there was doctrinal error beginning to creep in. There were people that were starting to drift away from the truth. Now, we've read in Galatians chapter number one, the Bible talks about the fact, though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel than that which is preached. Let him be accursed. The idea being that if we preach another Christ, another Jesus, if we preach another gospel, that these are to be considered false teachers. So the Apostle Paul, and we have him written out there to the side of the top blank there, the Apostle Paul was given to um, defending truth, or I would say this, he was given to fighting error in the churches uh, to expose it, to bring the truth to light. Okay, however you want to word that in there is fine. Uh, I'll have to give you the exact wording when my, my notes pop up. I had it worded a little bit different than that. But basically, the Apostle Paul had given himself uh, to do this. Uh, quite a bit of stuff is going on here. In fact, uh, the books First and Second Corinthians to the church at Corinth, probably one of the most carnally minded churches that there was, uh, so carnally minded that they even were practicing openly in their churches uh, adultery and fornication and had no problem with it. And Paul had to deal with some things with the church in, in Corinth uh, and some of the problems that they were uh, having in their church. Uh, turn with me, if you will, to Romans, uh, I'm sorry, Revelation uh, chapter number 2. Revelation chapter number 2, and I want us to look at a couple things here very quickly. 
Revelation chapter number 2, in the first church, we find seven letters here. I'm not going to go through all of them, but I am going to show you some of the errors that take place here uh, just to show you again that even in the early church, uh, in the first hundred years, uh, there's already problems that are creeping in. (coughs) God is giving some revelation to John, who's putting this down, and these are literal churches that are in existence. These are literal letters. In fact, uh, historians uh, have said, I've read several historical accounts, that the letter that was sent to the church at Smyrna was actually able to be, you could go to that church as late as 150 A.D. and actually see the written handwriting of John himself as he wrote that letter to that church. Um, It's it's interesting to to note that that late in, in church history, there were still some original scraps of the actual penning of Scripture. And so we find here that uh, in verse number, let's start in verse number 5, we're talking about to the church at Ephesus. Uh, Let's back up just a little bit in verse number 4. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. So again, we're seeing a coldness kind of creep into the church at Ephesus. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do thy first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But that this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, uh, which uh, I also hate. He that hath an ear, uh, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So there was something that was happening here. Ephesus was a church that was an on-fire church. They were excited about the things of the Lord. And the Bible says here that they were leaving their first love. First uh, John, I think it is. First John chapter 4 uh, talks about loving not the world. I think, is that the, that, I think that's the reference. If not, I'll have to get you the exact reference. I think it's First John chapter 4. It says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the loves of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life uh, are not of the Father, but are of the world. And so we find that there's uh, a drawing, if, the, if you will, of the old man. We call it temptation. And uh, while they had a love for the Lord Jesus Christ, they were departing their love for the Lord, and they were following after more and more worldliness. They were leaving their first love. Now we find as we get down uh, to uh, the church of Smyrna, there's not a whole lot that that John has to say uh, regarding their problems. He knows they're going through persecution Uh, He encourages them to stay faithful and to stay true through the persecution that they're going through. And we get down then to the church at Pergamos. Uh, The church at Pergamos was in a very difficult situation. The the city at Pergamos was um, a vile uh, city. In fact, it was wholly given to idolatry. And this church had to bear up in in the face of idolatry and corruptness. And the Bible says here, let's look in verse number um. Uh, let's start with verse number 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. So this is the city that uh, even God says, this is where Satan uh, is seated. This is, you know, he's the prince and power of the air. He's the prince of this world. And apparently, from what we understand here, at the time of this writing, Pergamos was the city where Satan had set up camp. Uh, this was his seat. 
and, uh, and thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. So there was some encouraging things about the church in Pergamos. Uh, uh, verse number, uh, let's see, where are we at? Verse number 13, okay. And thou hast self asked thy name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas uh, was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold to the doctrine, hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So thou hast uh, those, uh, thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, this is a very important pa- uh, portion of Scripture because a lot of the issues that cause our, us to depart from our doctrine stem from this mindset that we find here at the church at Pergamos. Understand, this city is the seat where Satan dwelleth. Is actually is the wording that's used here. There's unbelievable idolatry here. The church at Pergamos has been, has been true. They've been faithful to the doctrine of Christ. But it also says that they're somewhat against them because they also, in addition to their faithfulness to God's Word, they are also allowing in their church in the mindset that's happening here, they are also allowing the doctrine of Balaam. Uh, What's the doctrine of Balaam? Well, we find here a little bit of the description of it where it says here in verse number 14 uh, that hold to the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel uh, to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. Hold your finger here for a moment and turn back to the book of Numbers chapter number 22. Numbers chapter number 22, and I want to show you where the origin of this actually happened. Uh, There's a lot to be said about this uh, that I think sometimes we miss over. In fact, I was talking to my daughter a little bit about it this afternoon. Numbers chapter number 22, and I want you to understand here that the nation of Israel at this point in their history is faithful to the Lord. They uh, have come out of Egypt. They're on fire for the Lord at this point. They've, they've started to conquer a few places and the word and some people and some of the, uh, the news of their success and the God's blessing and God's hand upon them has spread to the king of Moab. And uh, the king of Moab here is, Moab here is Barak. And we find here uh, in verse number, uh, Balak, in verse number, uh, uh, let's back up to verse number 7. And the, elder, the king of Balak of the Moabites had sent or is sending some men to go talk to Balaam, who is a man of God. He's a prophet of God, speaks God's word. So understand that. Verse number 7, And the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the rewards of divination in their hand. Now, I just want to say this. When we talk about divination, we're dealing here with issues of the occult and the spirit world and and things that no Christian, no, no godly person should ever have a part with. But there's rewards of that. There certainly is a, a, a monetary gain that's given. And they're coming to bring this to Balaam with the idea that Balaam has some kind of mystical power to do something. And that they're going to buy this service from Balaam. And they came to Balaam and spake unto him the words of Balak. And he said unto them, verse number 8, 
<coughs> lodge here this night, and I will bring you word again as the Lord shall speak unto me. And the princes of Moab abode with Balaam. And God came unto Balaam and said, What men are these with thee? And Balaam said unto God, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, hath sent unto me, saying, Behold, there is a people come out of Egypt, which covereth the face of the earth. Come now, curse me them. Peradventure I shall be able to overcome them and drive them out. So he's speaking here of the nation of Israel. And that's the, the, the people that Balak is fearful of, and he wants Balaam to curse the nation of Israel so that he can have victory over them. Verse number 12, And God said unto Balaam, Thou shalt not go with them, thou shalt not curse the people, for they are blessed. And Balaam rose up in the morning and said unto the princes of Balak, Get you into your land, for the Lord refuseth to give me leave to go with you. And the princes of Moab rose up and went, they went unto Balak and said unto Balaam, uh, and said, Balaam refuseth to come with us. And Balak sent yet again princes more and more honorable than they. And they came to Balaam and said unto him, Thus saith Balak the son of Zippor, Let nothing, I pray thee, hinder thee from coming unto me. So the second time now, Balak is sending uh, some people to, to convince Balaam. This time he sends people of influence, the princes, if you will. And, uh, boy, my computer came up. We may get to it yet. And so um, they come to him again. And the Bible says in verse number 17, For I will promote thee unto a very great honor. This is what he's enticing Balaam with. And I will do whatsoever thou sayest unto me. Come therefore, I pray thee, curse me this people. And Balaam answered and said unto the servants of Balak, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. And we would look at that and look at Balaam and say, Amen, Balaam. Hang in there, buddy. No matter what the king offered, he was saying, I'm only going to do what God tells me to do. Sounds pretty good so far, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound good? All right. Now, therefore, I pray you, tarry ye also here this night, that I may know what the Lord will say unto me. What's the next word here? More. Well, I don't know that Balaam should have ever done that. Now, some people could argue the point. That's fine. But God had already made known his will to Balaam, hadn't he? You're not to curse that people. They're a blessed people. He even gave him the explanation why he wasn't to go. Yet when the princes came, offering the wealth and the prestige and the position and the money, Balaam said, but I can't do any more than what God says. But I'll tell you what, y'all stay the night with me. Let me go check with God again. Y'all ever, have y'all any, any of you done that to God? I, I've done that to God a few times. I've been like, boy, I know God, I know you said it, but let me just check one more time, make sure I didn't miss it. This is a great opportunity. You see where Balaam's coming from here? Probably should have never done that. Aren't you glad God's long-suffering? So look what it says here. In God, verse number 20, And God came unto Balaam at night and said unto him, If the men come to call thee, rise up and go with them. But yet the word which I shall say unto thee that shalt thou do. He's saying, listen, if the men come and ask you to go with them in the morning, then get up and go. But Balaam, listen to me. You only do what I tell you to do. Now look at the next verse. Verse number 21. And Balaam rose up in the morning. And if that's as far as the verse had gone, so far he's okay. But the next words... Cause us to see the flaw in Balaam. 
and saddled his ass and went with the princes of Moab. And God's anger was kindled because he went. I remember for years hearing this story and wondering, well, God just said he could go with the princes, didn't he? Why now is he angry at Balaam for going with the princes? What, what happened? What was God's condition for Balaam to go with them? If they ask you to go with them. Nowhere do we find them in the morning when he gets up saying, Balaam, come on, let's go. He just gets up and on his own he goes. He was using a technicality in the way that God said things to justify his wrongdoing. Now, I don't know what Balaam has in his mind at this point. Apparently God knows what's in his heart. But certainly he has illustrated something. That even though on one side he wants to hold true to what God has said and he can do nothing but, on the other side that wealth and that prestige is drawing him. And with excitement he jumps on his donkey in the morning and follows after these people. And notice it says in verse 22 that God's anger was kindled because he went. God had not told him to go. Those men had not asked him in the morning to go. He just gets up and go, goes because he, is, he has a love and a covetousness for the things that the king is offering him. And the angel of the Lord stood in the way for an adversary against him. Now he was riding upon his ass and two servants were with him. And the ass saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way and the sword drawn in his hand. You know the rest of the story how that he beats his, his donkey, tries to get him to go around, and, and finally God puts the donkey uh, with words in his mouth, and he speaks to Balaam and says, Why are you beating me? I've been faithful to you all these years, and can't you see there's an angel here in front of us? And kind of stops him. Balaam's issue comes down to this. He goes, he goes there. He meets the king and he says, O king, I'm going to do what the Lord tells me to do. Here's what I need you to do. Set up seven altars. We're going to sacrifice seven sacrifices and God will tell us what to do. Now now follow with me for a moment. God comes to him and again says, you're not going to uh, curse Israel. In fact, I want you to bless Israel. So he comes out and he tells King Balak and he pronounces a blessing on the nation of Israel. Balak gets mad. He says, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's come over here and let's try it again. And see if God says something different. Why would the king Balak think God would say something different the second time? Because of the example of Balaam. Who went to God a second time. Trying to see if God would say something different. And so Balak thinks, well hey, all we got to do is just keep pleading until God gives in. So they do it seven more times. Seven more altars, seven more sacrifices. And again, God blesses the nation of Israel. Balak is mad, the king of Moab. He's mad. He says, wait, 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 wait. Third time's a charm. Let's go over here to this place and let's do it a third time. Surely God's going to at some point let you curse Israel for me. They go over for the third time. Why in the world is Balaam following along the second and the third time when God's already told him from the very beginning that Israel is a blessed people and not to be cursed? Because of money, wealth, prestige. 
I'm going to put it into a very simple flaw, and here's the flaw. He wanted to have one foot on God and the other foot in the world. He wanted to have the best of both worlds. At no time does God allow Balaam to curse Israel. But you know what he does? He lets Balak know that, hey, here's a way you can defeat God's people. Right now they're serving God. Right now they're on good terms with him. But if you can get your daughters to infiltrate the Israelites and get them to marry your daughters and have, have immoral relations with your daughters and get them to follow after your gods, God will turn on Israel. By chapter number 31, guess what Balak's done? He's infiltrated the nation of Israel and caused them to fall into idolatry. Why? Because Balaam was enticed by the things of the world. It sounds good. On the surface, you think, boy, what a great thing. He's staying true to God, but has a desire for the things of the world. By the way, let me just say this. Before we're too critical of Balaam, that is a battle that every single one of us sitting here tonight faces every day of our lives. Do we not? There's the enticement to love the things of the world and to have the best of both worlds. And by the way, when you look at church history and what takes place all the way down through church history, you'll find that one of the great motivations for the, the problems and the, the, the issues with church and doctrinal error is because of that very thing. That some people want to have the doctrine, they want to have the truth, but they also want to include things from the world. And we're going to see that down through church history. Give me a moment. Let me see if I can pull this up real quick. And I can try to help you with some of this. All right. <clears throat> All right, so back to Revelation chapter 2 for a moment. Now let's look at the uh, issue here, verse number 14 of chapter 2. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. That was to have his daughters go uh, basically prostitute the, the men of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now this is the second time we've seen the Nicolaitans mentioned. In the church of Ephesus, he says, I'm glad you don't follow after the things of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. Now, notice he doesn't hate the people. He hates what their deeds are, the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And by the way, can I say this? Uh, we ought never to hate people, but we can certainly hate the conduct and the sin that they're in. And by the way, there needs to be a revival of eschewing evil again. There needs to be a revival of calling sin, sin, and saying, listen, that's wrong, and I want nothing to do with it. We, we get too comfortable, I think, sometimes in our sin. I, I know there's times I battle think through things like that and have to come to a place where I realize... Let's see if I can get rid of this a minute. Uh, so now we've seen the Nicolaitans. Well, who are the Nicolaitans? Uh, what, what are we talking about here? Well, the Nicolaitans are a group of people who come from one of the original seven deacons that were selected in the book of Acts. Hold your place here and look with me in the book of Acts, chapter number 6. Acts chapter number 6, and I don't have all this in your workbook, but I'm just giving you a background while we're waiting on the computer to pull up here so we can go through a few more notes here. Acts chapter number 6, I believe is where we're needing to be. Uh, okay, yeah, verse number 3. Uh, let's back up verse number, 
uh, two. When the twelve called uh, the multitude of disciples, then the twelve called the multitude of disciples unto them and said, "It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom ye may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word." And uh, the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, uh, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Now, uh, it's interesting that that we use the the term a proselyte for Antioch. Uh, Nicholas was a, a man who had been given to the occult and idolatry, uh, before he became uh, a, a follower of Judaism of that day and became uh, a Jew. And so the reason he's referred to as a proselyte is because of uh, the fact that he uh, was changing from his paganism to Judaism. When he gets saved, he trusts Christ as his Savior, he now becomes a Christian. And so at least two different times he has changed religions, if you will, and as a result of this, one of the things that we'll find, and there are, there are historical accounts of Nicholas in particular, but we also find that, again, he's referred to here as having the same doctrine as Balaam, the idea of having one foot in the world and one foot in the church. And, uh, and we find here that uh, Nicholas uh, had no problems, and we'll find this coming down through church history a lot of times. He had no problem with adapting the practices of worldly things into the church house. We're going to find that an awful lot in church history. Uh, I went down to Haiti several years ago. In fact, we were supposed to have the Snooks with us this past Sunday. They were here in town, and they're missionaries. Uh, They were with Missionary Flights International for many years, and they fly down to Haiti. And uh, they were members of our church when I was in pastoring in Florida. And uh, while I was down there, uh, we got an opportunity to go to Haiti a few times. And one of the interesting things is when you go to Haiti, almost everywhere you look, you'll find the word Jesus or Cristo or Evangelica or some of these types of words that we would look at. I mean, they're extremely religious. If you looked around, you'd think this is a Christian country. And yet 90% of the Haitians are steeped in the occult in a practice that is a very real practice called voodoo. And yet they, they came in many, many years ago. Uh, the, the Catholic Church came in there and brought Christ to uh, uh, the uh, folks there in Haiti. Haiti used to be a very affluent country, uh, very affluent, very wealthy country. Um, and uh, they came in to give them the gospel. Well, in order to get them to integrate into the church, um, they, uh, they said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to mix um, a little bit of your voodoo practices, your paganism, your idolatry, your Satan worship, in with our church. And to this day, you go to the Roman Catholic churches there in Haiti, and they actually practice some forms of voodoo in the church itself. And you'll find that down through history, I'm not just picking on Catholics tonight, I'm just saying that type of thing happens over and over again throughout church history. And it becomes a very interesting thing. Uh, let me see, I think we're about ready. Let me go ahead and pull this up. See if we can get it. Oops. There we go. Two lines of church history. And so we are at the Apostles. 
All right? So understand that this doctrinal error is creeping in. Now, there is a line of what we would call doctrinal purity. Doctrinal purity. Now, this line is going to come down through history. We're going to find a number of groups. Now, they're not all going to be called Baptist. I'm not a Baptist writer. I don't think that, I don't believe that only Baptists are going to heaven. That's not where I'm going with this. But I will say this. There has always been an unbroken line of a remnant of folks who have held to doctrinal purity. The reason that they have held to doctrinal purity is for one issue. And please do not miss this issue. This is the key everything regarding purity of doctrine. Are you ready? The reason they have purity of doctrine is because they believe that the Bible is their sole authority of faith and practice. The Bible is their sole authority of faith and practice. When that is the sole authority, then everything that we believe, we can come back to this word and say, does it teach that? And if it doesn't, we're wrong. And if it does, then we're right. And so the groups that have held to the Bible uh, have, have always had uh, the safety net of saying, you know what, if we're starting to drift from our doctrine, and some of them do throughout history, even though they start pure, some of them begin to drift, they can always come back and say, but what does the Bible say? I know that's what we as a group believe, but what does the Bible say? And by the way, there's a danger of believing what we believe just because we belong to a particular group. Amen? We ought to believe what we believe because what? The Bible says it. If I teach it as your pastor, and Brother Harold and I, I think we're talking today about this and wondering why some doctrines are swallowed hook, line, and sinker by good people in Bible preaching and Bible believing churches. And he brought up a thought that a lot of times because the pastor endorses this belief coming into the church, the people take it and say, well, we trust our pastor. Can I tell you this? I'm thankful that the position of pastor is there, and I certainly appreciate the respect to the office of pastor, but the pastor can be wrong on doctrine just as much as any other person. And you as, a, as God's child, you must have the Bible on your laps to check. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I've been wrong before, and I'm sure I, it won't be the last time. We must come back, and I, we cannot believe what we believe just because we belong to a group or an organization. Most of the other denominations out there believe what they believe because of, or a lot, let me say a lot, I don't want to say most, a lot of them do because they belong to that group of people. And that group has chosen to add other things outside the Bible to give them their doctrine. And doctrinal error begins to creep in. All right, so we have this doctrinal error creeping in. The Apostle Paul battles error in the churches. Now, about 150 A.D., we have a group of people come out called the Montanists. Then we have the Novatians. The Montanists, if you'll notice kind of a trend here, about 50 or 60 years of this, and some, some things begin to creep in, and so another group arises. And they usually pull out of the group that, that is there because they look at their Bibles. And that's why... I believe that the Baptists are so good in this area because we actually encourage people to hold a Bible on their lap. You can see for yourself, you alone have to give an account to God for how you believe and what you believe. So we have these groups. We have the Montanists. Can everybody see that? I'll move out of the way for a moment. 
We have the Montanists, we have the Novatians in 200 AD, around 200 AD, and then we have the Donatists. Now, this is all happening within the first 300 years or so. And uh, all of these folks are holding to doctrinal purity. Now, they may have a few peculiarities in their practices, but as far as their beliefs on the truth of the Word of God, they are doctrinally pure. Now, let me tell you why they're doctrinally pure. They're doctrinally pure because around 100, uh, about a 100 or so, 150 A.D., when the Montanists come onto the scene, uh, they take the scriptures from the texts that were there and, and understand that there were still, at 150 A.D., there were still literally the handwritten original texts of scripture around. Now, not all of them were. Most of them were copies from the Old Testament especially. But a lot of them had a lot of the New Testament writings and could actually see the handwriting of the author who actually penned it when they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. They go straight to these copies, and these Montanists who believe doctrinally pure, they cannot believe doctrinally pure unless they have a Bible. Do we see that? And I want you to follow with me because you're going to see here as we go through church history that the issue of which Bible becomes critical. Does the King James Version matter? Oh, boy. Wait till you get through this study. It absolutely matters. What about all these other versions? They come from corrupt texts. We're going to see that. I know it's five minutes after eight. Give me five more minutes. I won't keep you as long as I did last week, I promise. Okay? So the Montanists, they come out and they take and they, they take the Greek scriptures that they have and the, uh, uh, all the Old Testament scriptures that they have, and they, they translate them meticulously because they're so concerned about doctrinal purity. They, they translate them meticulously into what is known as the Old Latin Bible, the Old Latin Bible. Now, this is not the Latin Vulgate that we know about later on in history, but this is one that's used for over a thousand years by the early church. Uh, then there's, um, uh, there's another one called the Syriac, Syriac Bible that shortly after that comes out, and uh, it's in, um, oh, somebody help me, Aramic? Uh, somebody help me. Uh, I'll have to look that and let you know. And it's used for a thousand years. Again, taken from a, as much of the original manuscripts and the pure purity of Scripture that was already there on the scene. Now, another man comes on the scene here about 185 or so. Now, on your notes, I think I misspelled it. I corrected it before, after I printed this out. It's O-R-I-G-E-N, if you ever want to look him up and study about it. Origen. Uh, Origen was a philosopher, a very corrupt man, and um, did not believe in the deity of Christ. Uh, began to teach some doctrinal error about some things. And, uh, and so Origen comes in, and he takes the old Latin Bible that the uh, Montanists have uh, meticulously translated. And because he has certain things that he holds to, um, let me see if I can give you some of those. He, he denies the deity of Christ, of the Lord Jesus Christ. He embraces what's called textual criticism. That's a big word. Uh, you don't have to write these in your notes. It's not necessarily down there. Uh, but basically it's coming in and trying to look at the word and say, well, I don't think it should be that word. It should be this word. And I don't think this was done right. I think it ought to be this way or that way. And he starts correcting, quote-unquote, 
to fit his beliefs, the old Latin Bible. And he changes it. Are you ready for this? He changes it over 30,000 places to deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He embraces textual criticism. He, he, he embraces uh, replacement theology. Replacement theology is a horrible thing. In fact, it's becoming prevalent in some Baptist churches, and they are vastly in doctrinal error that says that Israel is no longer God's chosen people, that the church has replaced them. That is, Brother Harold, correct me, that is originally from pretty much the Catholic group, is it not? Am I right on that or stems from that pretty much? Or maybe, maybe they adapted it around that time? Perhaps, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong on that. You can look check me on that. But regardless, he embraces this truth or this thought. And Brother Harold, will, he's going to uh, expand on this, Lord willing, next week a lot further. Um, and we'll go further with it. But anyway, he, he embraces this, this doctrinal error of the replacement theology that, that uh, Israel is no longer God's chosen people, that now the church has taken its place. And I'm thankful that the church is grafted in, but can, can I tell you this? Rest assured that God's chosen people are still his chosen people. Israel is still the, his chosen people and will be throughout eternity. Uh, and so Origins does that. He questions creation. Uh, he doesn't believe in a literal creation. He begins to allegorize the Bible and say that it's not literal. It's open for interpretation. By the way, this is creeping into churches by leaps and bounds, and if we're not careful, we'll creep into Keith Heights Baptist Church. We do not ever sit here and say, well, the Bible means this to me. And somebody else says, the Bible means this to me, and the, this, this means this to me. No, no, no. The truth is settled forever, O Lord. Thy word is settled in heaven. And applications may vary, but the truth does not change. If I say that I'm saved by faith because that's what the Bible says to me, and Brother Keith comes over here and says, well, I, I've read the Bible, and I think the Bible says I'm saved by works. Rest assured, something is wrong there. It does not change. The truth does not. Origen believed that it did, that it was conditional, that it was allegorical, that some of the things that it said were not literal but were figurative. He also believed in, in um, uh, the deed of Christ, and so he begins to change the Scripture. Uh, real quickly, just to give you a brief synopsis here, around 300 or so, just shortly around that time, Constantine comes on the scene, um, and uh, there's a a bishop of Hippo that comes on the scene. Uh, most people know him as uh, Augustine. Um, and uh, was I think he was over in Africa somewhere. He begins to persecute the Donatists, the third group that's up here. In fact, he, he, he went into a town and killed over 30,000 of them. And one of the Donatist elders, bishops, came to, wrote a letter to him and, and said that God did not call uh, princes and armies. God called prophets and fishermen. Please quit killing us. And Augustine, this saint, says that they were in error because they did not belong to the church and slaughtered 30,000 of them simply because they wanted to practice religious liberty. And so we see doctrinal error creeping off. In 325 A.D., we have the Council of Nicaea. Constantine establishes this, gets all these, um, these church leaders, bishops together, elders, priests, whatever you want to call them, and they say, okay, here are some of the things we're going to believe as a whole. 
And we find in 325, let me see if I'm there yet. Yep, Council of Nicaea. We find in 325 A.D. that for the first time in history, we have marriage of church and state. And uh, the idea being that the church is, has the authority of the state and the state has the right to dictate the doctrines of the church, vice versa. In fact, in some places at this point, the church, which later becomes known, and, and there, uh, Brother Harold will talk about this, there, there are traces of this era of Catholicism all the way back through up to Peter, but at this point we find that the authority is given, and unfettered authority. In fact, it's going to go through uh, the Inquisition. We're going to talk about that uh, in just a moment. But we find for the first time marriage of church and state. And all of a sudden, the church has great influence over the state and sometimes even more power than the king. They have their own armies. They have their own military. They have their own laws. And they enforce them. Then for about the next 1,500 years, we have several different groups. We have... Uh, the Cathares, the Albigenses. Uh, the Albigenses, around 1100 and so, around the 12th century, um, there was a city of those in France where, again, 60,000 of them are slaughtered. Now, here's the doctrines that take place. Um, Jerome comes on the scene uh, for the, after the Council of Nicaea around this time period. And he's given the challenge to take the old Latin Bible that has been doctrinally pure and has been uh, meticulously translated and is, is the beginning of the line where we get our King James Bible from. And Jerome comes on the scene, and Jerome is given the task of correcting uh, the old Latin. And so he brings it over. And you know what the first thing Jerome does to correct the, Latin, the old Latin uh, version? He goes all the way to Origen's works. Origen corrected the Bible in how many places? 30,000. He spends his life's savings to buy all of Origen's works on correcting the old Latin in 30,000 different places. And he uses Origen writings, and Jerome uh, corrects the old Latin over 6,000 times, and it becomes known, or what, what came to be known as the Latin Vulgate, and that's where we get the Latin Vulgate from. Later on down through history, we have the Latin Vulgate. Now we've got uh, two other things that will come into play. At the foot of Mount Sinai, in one of the monasteries, they found in a fireplace, half burnt, uh, a, a uh, manuscript of Scripture. And they took those and said, okay, these are called the Sinaiticus. They were found at the foot of Mount Sinai. Another was found in the Vatican, uh, another set of manuscripts, and those are known as the Vaticanus. And so we have the Latin Vulgate, the Sinaiticus, and the Vaticanus. And a couple of men got together in the 1800s called Westcott and Hort. And they said, we think that we need to uh, come out with a better translation, English translation. And so they used these three sources. These three sources disagree with each other over 5,000 times in and of themselves. They, they can't even be in agreement with each other. On the other side of that coin, we have the old Latin uh, and the Syriac Bibles, and those lead down all the way through to uh, through all these churches, the Cathares, uh, the Donatists, the Albigenses, continuing to translate these down into the languages that are necessary. We get to the Tyndale Bible. Uh, we go down through several other uh, Bibles, and then uh, we find that the King James comes on the scene as a final translation. These are taken from over 5,000 texts that are known as the received texts. They've been compiled 
that all agree with themselves almost every case. There's very, very few portions where over 5,000 of them do not agree in detail. Most of them are grammatical errors or uh, uh, words are left out or just through transcribing some things. But we find that you've got over 5,000 texts over here that have been meticulously done. Over here you have three texts that have knowingly been changed drastically from what the originals were uh, when, they, when they translated them. And every other version of Scripture, the NIV, the RSV, the ASV, any other version of Scripture other than our King James Bible comes from this line of texts over here, the three. Does it matter which Bible we have? Yes, it does. Very, very important. Because these are corrupt. They've been knowingly changed by heretical men who had an agenda to prove some things theologically. They change these works, and then they come up with an English Bible. That's why the Catholic Bible differs from our Bible. Uh, later on in history, they add the Apocrypha, 14 more books in between the Old and New Testament. Uh, again, they're not canonical books. They're not books that are uh, intended to be part of our Bible, and yet they're accepted. All right, very quickly, we're almost done. All right, so then we have the Waldenses, we have the Lollards, and then we have the Anabaptists. This leads us up to about 1500 A.D., the Anabaptists were, the word means rebaptizers. Um, the reason that a lot of these were done is um, some doctrines came into, and Brother Harold will go through some of these next week, but one of the, the issues came, the worship of Mary was a big issue, um, and they believed that you had to have baptism in order to be saved. And that baptism in order to be saved led to infant baptism because the infant mortality rate was so high during those days that they did not want a child to die and go to hell or purgatory, uh, which they later came up with. They didn't want them doing that, so they would baptize them as early as possible because they believed that baptism saved you. Uh, there are people who died over that one issue. The Albigenses the reason they were, I'm sorry, the Donatists, the 30,000 Donatists that were uh, martyred uh, by Augustine, the reason that they were um, killed was because Augustine said both those that are rebaptizing and those that are rebaptized are in error and therefore deserve to die. And so he killed them over the issue of baptism, scriptural baptism. All right. During the 12th to 15th century, we have the Inquisition. I'm not going to talk a lot about that. Brother Harold may hit on that a little bit more next week. And then 1517 comes along, Martin Luther, uh, nailing of the 95 Thesis. We have the Reformation beginning. Boy, that's a great day. But still, even with the Reformation, a lot of them were wanting to reform the church and try to bring it back into doctrinal compliance with Scripture. And even then, Martin Luther still had added, even though he was saying the just shall live by faith, Later on, he endorses a statement of belief and says, plus works. And so even then, works comes into the picture. And so a lot of those things uh, become problems. Now, out of this group, out of these, we have the Protestants. They were the protesters. They come out of the Reformation. Notice this, and I want you to please see this. Please, 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 if you don't get anything else tonight, see this. The Baptists are not Protestant. We never were part of that group. 
Do you understand that? I know that when the news organizations put up statistics, they include Baptists in the Protestant group. Understand this, we are not Protestants. Now, there are some groups that came out of the Protestant movement that started coming back after the King James Bible came out. Boys started having a revival and a draw back to God for several hundred years. We had great revivals happening because the common man had the Scripture in his own language. By the way, let me say this. The common man had the preserved words of God himself in their own language. There's a lot going on today, and even in our church, our, our circles, uh, a fella just, that I heard about here just recently, several years ago, it's been probably 20, 30 years ago, started off in Bible college. He went to Moody Bible Institute. He went there as an evangelical. He left there as a, uh, as a, uh, a guy who was kind of beginning to question some things. And he goes to Wheaton College, and he leaves there a skeptic. He goes to Princeton, gets his Ph.D. at the seminary at Princeton, and leaves Princeton as an infidel. All because in each of these colleges, they teach this. The same mindset that Origen had, as saying it's an allegory, that while the Bible may contain the thoughts of God, it's not God's Word. Can I tell you this? The only way for doctrinal purity is if we have a Bible that we can hold to and say, this is the very words of God to me. And that is where the Baptist line has come. Don't leave here tonight and say, Brother Greg doesn't think anybody's right but the Baptists. A hundred years ago, Baptists, Methodists, sometimes even Presbyterians, sometimes Lutherans, occasionally in some of the old-time Nazarene uh, folks would join together for great revivals. 150, 200 years ago, Presbyterians preached the Word of God doctrinally pure as far as salvation. There were a few other things they were off on, but if you needed to get saved, you could get saved in a Presbyterian church. You could get saved in a Lutheran church. You could get saved in, a, in a, some of the old conservative and, uh, Anglican church, uh, uh, churches. Uh, you could get saved um, in Methodist churches, no doubt about it. And you can still, in a, a fair, uh, rare occasion, still today get saved in those. They're few and far between anymore because they're quickly adapting after having their foot in the world and their foot following Christ. So much so that now these groups are ordaining and putting in leadership position homosexuals. And there's, what they're doing is they're saying we want to have the best of both worlds. That becomes an issue down through history. The church trying to, to morph the worldliness into the church. Uh, by the way, if there's no other argument for separation and standards in a church, that's the only argument we need. We cannot have our foot in the world and have our foot firmly on the Lord Jesus Christ. There are standards. There are, there are things that we ought not love. And there ought not to be... In fact, the Bible talks about there being things that ought not even be named among the saints. When somebody thinks of us, they ought not to even think of a thought of worldliness. We ought to live life above reproach. So uh, the, the Reformation begins. Then we start seeing some great revivals coming back to God. Uh, some, some organizations, some uh, denominations... Hold very strongly, getting back to purity of doctrine. Again, they now have the King James Version. is printed in the common man's language, and a lot of them began to use it. Let me tell you this. You can't preach out of the King James Version very long without starting to find your doctrinal errors. Amen? You're going to see them sooner or later. And uh, so these churches began to do that. Then, then we find late 1800s, early 1900s, middle of the 1900s, 
and now a rash within the last 30 years of churches departing from the King James Version Bible. And what do we see happening? We start seeing the doctrine slip again, don't we? Now they're following after Scripture that has its origins from origin. (laughs) Has its origins from an inferior set of texts. Okay? I know I took long. I have to apologize. I lied to y'all. I did not think I would keep you here as long as last week. I did. I kept you here as long. So sorry about that. I'm going to leave this up. If you missed any of the notes, we'll keep it there. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in prayer. If you have any questions, I'll be glad to try to answer them for you. I will say this, folks. I did not exhaust this subject by any stretch. This is a brief, this is a very, very skeleton framework of church history. Um, and uh, But I wanted to set the platform, kind of show you that there is an unbroken line from what we claim we've come from historically, and then a line of other churches that are in doctrinal error, okay? And uh, that's important for us to know as we go forward and, and study about some of these other groups. All right, let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. I pray that you'll bless and use it. I pray that you would help us to understand and know our roots. Father, help us to have a mind that is open to the purity of your word and that we will follow after doctrinal purity. Lord, I have been guilty of myself and found myself sometimes believing and holding to things that I've been taught rather than trying to find them in your word and make sure that they were true. And Father, while sometimes they do turn out to be true, there have been a few times that there is not. I pray that you would help us to hold to the purity of the doctrine of your word. Help us to embrace it. And Father, not that we want to be hateful. We certainly do not want to be hateful. Lord, if folks disagree with us, that's fine. That's their right. We're not going to put them to death over that. We may disagree with them. We may separate from them. But we're not going to put them to death over it. Lord, down through history, that's not been reciprocated. We've allowed them to believe their beliefs without killing them and have no desire to do so. We believe that your word teaches individual soul liberty. But, Father, down through history, we've certainly paid the price for that by groups that have killed us for what we believe. I pray and we thank you for the freedom we've had in this life, in the time that we've been here on this earth. Lord, just a relatively short period of history that we've enjoyed the benefits of religious liberty to practice freely our worship and our beliefs. I pray that the day will not come where we will have to give our lives for what we believe. But Father, if and when that day does come, I pray that you would give us the strength of character and strength of faith to be able to hold true to that form of sound doctrine that we've been taught. I pray that you'll bless your word in our hearts and use it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All righty, we'll see you all Sunday.